Blog Talk Radio. For sustains humanity, human beings, human love, on a spiritual so vast, so great, the African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin to where you belong.
Continuation from the previous shows, which is part three, sports, slavery, and liberation. That's our thing tonight. But like always, it's always an honor to be able to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We hope to provide you with some information that will encourage you, stimulate you, and elevate you to a higher level of participation towards your people liberation and the liberation of humanity from all of the various forms of pressure. I, your host, Brother Africa, would like to invite you to today's program by sharing your thoughts and your ideas as we discuss various issues that impact your community. And you can do that by calling at one three two three 
1-800-609-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. This is Africa on the Move. And for those who are not familiar with our particular program, radio program, we like to party. And the way we start our party is to introduce you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. So we can get started right now. We can bring in our first panelists and analysts for today. We bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Uh, Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamasi Mashoki. Currently, I'm with African Awareness. And Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. But prior to even talking about that, I think it's, some, it's important that something that's a particular matter that has to be dispelled. And this notion in terms of uh, China being an imperialist power, I think we have to, some, to on some level begin to address that because I think that's critical in terms of our understanding of imperialism. So I wrote this piece, and I think it certainly should, should clarify, you know, historical uh, uh, understanding in terms of just what constitutes imperialism and what doesn't constitute imperialism. Then again, uh, check this out, Brother Africa. What constitutes imperialism continues to perplex. Many advocate their position China is an imperialist, as imperialistic as America. While the potential exists, the current economic paradigm suggests imperialism is the sole domain of the U.S. without a question. Imperialism is defined as ideological policy expressly committed to the subjugation of a people or a country with the express purpose of economic and political domination. Under this rubric, the comparison is not even close. U.S. history is replete with authoritarian aspirations lending to the evolution of imperialism. The quality of imperialism has shifted from military imperialism, whereby military engagements was the preferred method, to economic imperialism, which is preferable, particularly given the Afghan debacle. This transition, in no small part, was the result of over 1 million deaths resulting from 12 major wars the U.S. has been involved. In fact, the U.S. belligerents factored prominently in U.S. policies that saw U.S. military engagements at war 225 years out of its 240 years' existence since 1776. The switch to a soft imperialism involved out of necessity as a means to involve allied states in U.S. planning. Military intervention in Europe between World War I and World War II greatly limited the marketplace, while economic elites in U.S. realizing in a debt population in Europe cannot buy U.S. products devised a strategy to rectify the problem. Monetary policy under the National Security Conference 68 policy, recognizing solvency among Western, Western capitals, limited the possibility of U.S. economic gains, which compelled political elites in the U.S. to put into motion a plan which would maximize U.S. economic gains, while at the same time consolidating control over Europe's economy. The plan originated out of the U.S. Department of State and the Department of Defense, increased the U.S. military budget while increasing military aid to U.S. allies ensuring they become allies in the maintenance of U.S. economic and political power. However, in order to ensure strict compliance by European capitalists, the benefits of going along with this plan had to be tangible. In 1948, U.S. elites implemented the Marshall Plan. The plan was to spend $13 billion in Western U.S. economy. Now, it should be pointed out that the infusion of $13 billion was a result of European wars which impoverished European nations. While the U.S. industrial base provided much of the weaponry and logistics needed by the Allies to engage in military conflict, the U.S., by limited participation in these wars, was able to amass considerable capital, which was reflected in GDP, which grew from 
$88.6 billion in 1939 to $135 billion in 1944. Incidentally, the U.S. reduction of military equipment sales to England did not hurt the U.S. economy during World War II either. This infusion of capital greatly benefited European capitalist class. But more importantly, it indebted, indebted Europe's economy to invest in dollars as a means of paying off its debts. The, quote, business arrangement provided the impetus for U.S. to spend more because the more the U.S. spends, the increased recycling of dollars enhanced U.S. wealth exponentially. This resulted in the multiplier effect whereby the level of wealth flowing into the U.S. is so substantial it effectively subsidizes U.S. domestic debt. By the way, American subsidies is a result of other countries subsidizing U.S. debt by virtue of dollars as a reserve currency status, not because the U.S. is great or special. The evolution of imperialism continued with the advent of global money control. This money control would be facilitated by creation of an international bank referred to as a central bank. Central banks created in 1913, along with the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and World Bank created in 1944, were created specifically to provide liquidity for wealthy states, <clears throat> mostly wealthy Western states, and credit for developing states or so-called low-income countries. Understanding the distinction is key to understanding imperialism. Under the special drawing rights, the World Bank makes money available for wealthy states in need in case of disruption to the flow of capital that, ex that exclusively benefits wealthy states. On the other hand, the IMF International Monetary Fund has a quota system based upon financial contributions from donor states. The more a state contributes, the more it has say over the operations of the IMF. More importantly, the more a state contributes, the more the state can borrow against the IMF's $1 trillion in reserves. The question of credit is an important consideration. Credit suggests power resides with those extending credit. In the case of developing nations, the terms established by these three institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, <clears throat> and uh, what the World Bank IMF and uh, the IMF uh, result in debt pillage for development countries. Even though the stated goal by the IMF and World Bank is to reduce poverty, the reality is quite different. In the case of Africa, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, institutional mandates that undermines African development is even more pernicious. Currencies are labeled, quote, unimportant currencies by the IMF. African states can only utilize Western currencies for purposes of borrowing. In other words, African states must ask Western currency owners to use their currency to borrow capital. Factoring in exchange rates, African states are disadvantaged, but they are double bill. Not only do African states have to repay absorbent interest rates to the country they borrow its currency from, but also it has to repay absorbent interest rates, the highest in the world, to the IMF. This policy has been refuted by China in its advisory capacity, which has indicated that such practices only exacerbate poverty. Now, the imperialist strain of evolution never concedes defeat, even in the face of declining national economies, failing budgets, and declining investments. Imperialism received a boost in the 1980s when both Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher sought to shrink the state. Shrinking of the state entailed <clears throat> neoliberal policies where capital was unrestrained and regulations vanquished. The wealthy were free to capture the, the economic system or the state, and any talk of compa compassion was viewed as, soci as socialist lunacy, not in the relegated dustpan of history. Privatization they both espoused gateway to financial speculation and rapid greed that formed vast inequality. Financial speculation created a basis for financialization of the economy, which in turn empowered capitalists to ship jobs abroad and relocate entire factories 
under the most favored nation status. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, this movement was carefully orchestrated to corrupt China's political leadership in hopes China would join imperialism by adopting policy leading to the impoverishment of its people and exporting the global, global south, thus ensuring economic gains for a small cadre of megalomaniacal billionaires in the world. China's response has been to reject this precedent and allow money, not credit, to developed nations for development. Unlike the U.S., China uses credit only to circumvent corruption among developing states. The U.S. uses credit along with long maturity dates to maximize wealth extraction. China has extended loans to the Global South totaling more than $1.6 trillion since 2018. Among Western states, the amount of loans authorized has actually decreased according to both the IMF and the World Bank statistics. China provides interest rates and market prices with shorter maturity rates, keeping commodity imports as collateral while, while decreasing long-term debt of the developing nation. The U.S. uses long-term debt specifically to ensure developing nations are indebted forever. Under the guise of micro, macroeconomics, the plan is to prevent economic growth in the global south, compelling them to pursue more loans, creating more debt, and neg- negating economic growth. When all is said and done, the imperialist power is easy to discern. African leaders in the global south are free to reject China's business model without fear of military intervention or currency manipulation. Can African states or the global south say the same about U.S. policy? Now, to conclude, Brother Africa, I want to say something real quickly. It's important that we understand also that ultimately this fight in terms of being free uh, hinges on, you know, African participation or African states actually working with one another. Currently, there are six regional organizations that exist in Africa. We have ECOWAS, ECOWAS in West Africa. We have SADC, the South African Development Community in South Africa, Southern Region of Africa. We have East African. We have the East African Community. In the, uh Central Africa, we have the, the Economic Community of Central Africa. And in North Africa, we have the Arab Maghreb Union. And in the Saharan region, we have the CENSAD, SINSAD. So we have these regions that exist in Africa in terms of trade, but it's important that they consolidate these organizations. But one of the problems is that, you know, like always, the West simply will divide and conquer. In other words, as long as they have these competing interests in terms of economics, then the West can exploit that to their advantage. So Africa must have a unified policy in terms of confronting the policies of the West. Otherwise, they will be divided and conquered. So this is the message of uh, Kwame Nkrumah, take a two-way, in terms of the importance in terms of African unity. So if we're talking about the elimination or the ending of imperialism, then we have to talk about a, a unified, socialist, strong Africa. Without that, uh, anything else is simply not going to work. Not close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. We would like to say a word to the wise. I think it's become very important for us and all oppressed people to understand and find out the history of what is imperialism, how it operates, and who interest, interest it represents. So please, brothers and sisters, find out what imperialism is, how it functions and how we collectively can join together in this period. So we need him from Brother Hackey. We're next going to transcend to, trans to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thank you for having me, Brother Africa, and revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, 
objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, from Brother Afton, we're going to transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the move. Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Brother Afra, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Also, women hold up half the sky. That's why I'm, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A, yes. And so, once again, I'd just like to say the struggle is to unite the many to defeat the lives of the few. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses, and going from Brother Moses to our beloved sister, Eleanor. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa and our listening audience and to uh, my fellow panelists. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. Thank you so much, uh, I tell everyone to tune in, dial in, and let us know what you feel, what your research has revealed, and to join in. And thank you again, Brother Africa, and good evening, everyone. Always honored to have you, Sister Eleanor. And right now what we're going to do is we're going to pause for the calls, go to a revolutionary break, and when we come back, we want you to come and join us and participate in our segment, What's Going On Your World in the Community. We're going to take this break, and when we come back, we're going to find out what's going on in your world in the community. You are listening to Africa on the move. That's right, we on the move. Freedom of death, those only two choices we can guarantee you. Freedom of death. So let's move forward. Yeah. 
That's right. Don't be no Buffalo soldier. You must not forget you were stolen from your home Africa and brought to America. Fighting upon your arrival and you still fight for your survival. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. That's right. We're not trying to get no peace today. We want our equal rights and justice. There'll be no peace without no justice. And speaking of that, we're going to talk about what's going on in our world today and our communities. So our subskills, what's going on in your world community with our panelists and analysts, and we're going to invite you to join in with us by calling in at 3679 or 841 to share your views and your perspectives. Normally we have our analysts and panelists to give our perspectives of what's going on in our world today in the community before we have that individual perspective. I have a couple of concerns and issues that took place this week, and I would like to get their critique of these situations that was encountered by many of the brothers and sisters in the press community that live within the border of the USA. And one of the issues, panelists and this, I'd like to get your perspective on what message was the, or is the so-called um, prison administration, Pamela Harris and and what was and Joe Biden administration? What message did they send to the American, to so-called American people in general, African people in America in particular, and Africans throughout the world and humanity? When recently there was there was and still is, from my understanding, a large number of uh, people uh, fleeing from fleeing from oppression from Haiti and other countries from Central and South America, trying to enter into the border across the border of the U.S. from Texas. They said thousands and thousands of Africans from Haiti and other countries uh, trying to cross the Rio uh, um, border in Texas and. The U.S. sent their law enforcement um, agencies on horses and whip to so-called control our people. What kind of message and images were they trying to communicate to the world when they chose to commit that particular sinful um, behavior, Brother Haki? <laughs> well... I think, Brother Africa, I think what people have to begin to appreciate is that symbolism means a lot. Uh, how you go about resolving issues is key in terms of how our people are perceived. In the case of the Haitians trying to cross the Rio Grande, uh, it is very, very interesting that they showed a particular, uh, uh, a particular uh, uh, picture of people on horsebacks, you know, uh, swiping at them with whips. Is 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 uh, reminiscent of what uh, during the period of uh, jump, the period of enslavement of our people, of our ancestors, when they routinely rode around on the horses with whips, and, they, and if you didn't work hard enough to get it, you receive a lash from the whip. So clearly, this 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 perception they want to create in terms of uh, the Haitian the Haitian um, immigrants was one of that one of these Haitians are not important that the that the uh, their concerns are not important, and certainly uh, they value their lives uh, esoteric or simply uh, extremely not important. So I think so when we talk about the symbolism, we talk about that, we have to understand that when, when you talk about the treatment of the Haitians at the border, it doesn't by any stretch of imagination mean that their own, that kind of behavior uh, is, is, is intended to depict, you know, how a Haitian should be perceived. 
essentially what they're talking about is asking people across the board, this is how you proceed. The Haitians just happen to be the, 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 the bearers, uh, you know, uh, of that abuse. Uh, but the general message is that, listen, what we're doing to the Haitians is, is appropriate for all African people, irrespective of where they are or where they live. So clearly we have to understand when we see these kind of abuses affected upon African people, we've got to start thinking in terms of a people and start thinking about, well, you know, hey, I'm American, so that's not that. That ain't my concern. It is your concern because that kind of – because you've got to think about it. To impose that kind of, that kind of demeaning punishment on anybody – uh, not only speaks to the indifference in terms of in terms of the value of human life, but it's more and more more perniciously is saying that uh, these people essentially don't have a right to exist. The administrative of dignity, the administrative of humanity, should not be afforded them. And what is that based upon? It's based upon skin color. So if we base one second that because Haitians are from Haiti or they were born in Haiti, and that, that because you were born in the United States or you were born in Europe. Or you're born in the Caribbean, or, or in the Central or South America, that somehow this is not relevant to you, then think again. So clearly, the symbolism is very, very important, and I think it, it sent a message. So this notion in terms that Joe Biden is uh, uh, is different than than, than um, Trump, highly questionable. Even though he did at least he gave some lip service in terms of his disappointment in terms of the treatment of the male, the, the, the treatment afforded the Haitian. But the bottom line is, what are you going to do in terms of preventing that from happening in the future? That is the quintessential question. So uh, until he does something definitively that addresses you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, symbolism, then for me it's just talk, and I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother, ha- um, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, give me, your, give me your take on this, the message that was conveyed to African people, the rest of the world, by allowing people under his administration to put off police officers on horses and were whipped to control African people down at the border. How should we interpret that? Is that an act of war against African people, Brother Anthony, or what? What is this? It's an act of war, and it's a message that uh, that Africans aren't wanted in the U.S. Uh, there was a time period prior to capital, the, the, the development of capitalism inside the U.S. where we were needed for our cheap labor. Now, uh, thanks to uh, advances in technology, um Labor can be outsourced anywhere in the world, and uh, and uh, the message is that uh, since the imperialist forces control Africa, or trying to maintain control of Africa, they do they do not need Africans for cheap labor any longer. In uh, you know in in, uh, in in inside the U.S. I think that's the message they're sending. And also, it's not only being sent in this manner, but also in the, uh, in the fact that, uh, that Africans are, 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 are subject to harsher treatment when it comes to sentencing for similar crimes that other ethnic groups commit. 
and also uh, we're subject to worse health care. With the exception of the indigenous people of this hemisphere. So I think the message is that uh, is that uh, we are at war, and the war is one-sided because uh, we don't understand we're at war, and we're not uh, organizing uh, appropriately in order to protect our, our, our ourselves and our people. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, talk to us. What do you make of this particular narrative, the way they deal with our brothers and sisters from Haiti there at the border? Well, um, there was a, a definitely, I think one of the congresswomen said, uh, cowboys whipping people on, from horseback, and, uh, you know, there was a definitely outcry from different uh, ex uh, aspects of the the ruling order. Um, I don't know. I don't remember what Biden said, but I thought he he declared it. I'm not sure, but I don't remember exactly. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm not into this. They they they. Uh, um, but uh, I um, I think you know that domestic policy and foreign policy are the same policy, and so you know obviously. These people on horseback, you know, have no regard for. There's no rights that uh, black people have that they have to regard, uh, and that seemed to be the situation. And uh, uh, there's no getting around that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and we now turn to Sister Eleanor. Your response is Eleanor. Uh, the reality of the treatment of, of the Haitians is, uh, as the brother Anthony and brother Hakeem and the Allen said, we are at war, and we see the Willie Lynch story in acting. We saw Haitians being whipped by people that appear to be anarchists because this is happening in Texas where we see Governor Abbott uh, and his ridiculous legislative policies and practices. So we see this republic uh, in action. And, yes, we are at war because these Haitians have suffered environmental, an environmental disaster with the hurricane in addition to having an assassinated president and who would, meet the criteria of a political refugee better than the Haitians. I, I don't see anyone presently. However, um, I think, quite frankly, uh, the congresswoman from Seattle spoke up about it. President Biden spoke some about it, but the action that needs to be taken. I think these uh, persons need to be disciplined and terminated from their jobs. If those are federal jobs, they should lose their jobs. That behavior was, it was not from what you would imagine the 21st century to be. As one of the analysts said, it was reminiscent of, uh, 
of slavery and the overseers on horseback with whips. Anyone holding the whip needs to be identified and terminated from their job. This was the uh, this was a horrifying exhibit of racism and racial prejudice, and it also may speak to people of color uh, retaliating against other people of color, black people. So we need to watch this in this country. What's going on? I spoke to someone about it on Wednesday. And they're from West Africa, and they said, well, you know, our country is really going through many changes, and part of it is a cultural uh, crisis in how people identify themselves and each other. And somehow, some black people seem to be expendable. Well, the reality is we're the former enslaved people, descendants of the indigenous people, some of us, and more. And the reality is those Haitian brothers and sisters are just that, our brothers and sisters, and the treatment of them was uh, outrageous. And and it was just pure uh, racism. It was sending the message to Haitians that not only may you drown in the Caribbean, but you, your life is worth even less on the Rio Grande. And and it's quite interesting that right now not only are Haitians coming to, across the Rio Grande, but people that are escaping West Africa, the Cameroon, and other places are coming from Colombia, wa- walking or transporting themselves through Central America to the Rio Grande and try- attempting to enter the United States. The coyotes apparently aren't working well with them. Because I see people arriving here in Washington, D.C. from Central America, no stops at the Rio Grande and no visas saying, saying, you're welcome. So what's happening with our Haitian brothers and sisters in a crisis, an environmental crisis, and we've done nothing? I heard President Biden saying that 12,000 of them will uh, uh, have an opportunity to apply for asylum. Well, quite frankly, we need to allow all those people uh, that were there and so brutally treated by federal employees to have an opportunity to apply for asylum and to receive asylum in this United States. And uh, we have to do everything we can to organize and combat racism and xenophobia and, and misogyny in our community, in our black community, so that this type of behavior will not be tolerated. Thank you, Brother Africa. And I Thank you, Sister They should be fired and possibly prosecuted for their crimes of assault and battery. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You know, panelists, um, another media story that the last, I'll say, two to three weeks has been in the major news, and I'm trying to figure out why this story is, has captured the interest of the major media, considering that for the last two three years you have hundreds of thousands of African women and girls. They have gone missing, and no one knows where they're at. Hundreds and thousands of African 
women and young girls are missing. No one knows where they are at. But for the last couple of weeks, we have a missing parent who had disappeared from her husband while going on a vacation, camping trip, etc. And I'm trying to make this a sense, and I'd like to get y'all take on this. Why is it that this case has been so overexposed in terms of trying to figure out where it's her whereabouts and what happened to Kern? But for years, we have hundreds of thousands of African women and and young ladies who have disappeared. What's the, what does that say about a country or a nation? A nation when they choose people who may not be of European descent, they pay no attention to thousands that are missing or highlight one particular individual and make a very significant case and commit national resources to try to find out what's going on. Why is this case being presented as something of an urgency or something of an importance, which we do believe in, all lives are valuable. Are valuable. Brother Anthony, you start us off. What you make of this? What you draw from the way U.S. is behaving toward this missing current? Okay. Um the way uh, the U.S. media is behaving toward this missing uh, uh, woman uh, who was whose body was found last week, and uh, and uh, she was a victim of homicide. Now they uh, they uh, they're looking for her fiance, uh, who has not been found. And uh, the way the media is treating the story as if it's an isolation, uh, that is a, that is an isolated instance. But there are thousands of families that have been missing every day, mostly uh, mostly indigenous people and Africans. So their cases aren't taken as seriously and uh and with the concern that this case is uh because it involves a European couple. And uh I think uh I think the way that it's being handled reflects the racism and bigotry that exists in this society. And it's and it reinforces the fact that African lives do not matter because you, of the way they're treated in the mainstream. Yeah, media. Go ahead. How about that, brother Anthony? Brother Haki, what do you make? What do you make of this overkill in terms of how like this particular one case? We have hundreds of thousands of other cases that no one want to pay attention to. Well, brother, well, brother Africa, um, you know, um, you know, it's it's one of those anomalies. Um, 
that is that is that is very very interesting. But in order to appreciate what's going on, then we have to appreciate, uh, you know, the, the legacy of, um, of 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 racism in the society. Uh, one of the things I think is important, you know, when we talk about specifically when we talk about uh, you know this the the so-called virtues of reporting the dismissing uh, um, white female. I think one of the things you got to keep in mind is that aside from just promoting this this this, this notion of the sanctity of white of white people of white women, I think more importantly what it seeks to do is to tie into this whole movement around you know right wing abortion strategies that have taken place in this country. You know, recently a, a Texas congressman uh, talked about the fact that his biggest concern is white depopulation. And so this notion that, in fact, that, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a few, relatively few short years, that uh, the number of people of color versus the number of white people in, in American society can be relatively equal. And he sees that as spelling catastrophe for the American way of life. Uh, but, of course, that's ironic uh, because when you stop and think about it, to simply think that all people of color think the same uh, is ironic um, and, and it's a bit foolhardy. The bottom line is that there are clearly those who are of color who think just as as though the imperialists think. And so in the, to the extent that they're willing to perpetuate imperialist policies, you can be assured that there'll be those groups of people of color who are going to perpetuate imperialist policies. So the conflict that's inherent in terms of you know American life is not going anywhere. It's going to continue. But his thing was that he just wants to see white people in control of the imperialist politics that exist in society. So I think that this 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 this, this the, 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 the relevance in terms of, you know, as far as the people in position of power are concerned, is that by elevating the, the sanctity of, of a white white womanhood, uh, not only do you value all white life, but certainly uh, you create a situation in which if you create a scenario which suggests that white that white life is under siege, then you you elicit the support. And this goes hand in hand with, with the whole desire by those positions of power, particularly the capitalist class, to facilitate race war in society. So the whole strategy has always been in terms of how do you pit, you know, you know, people of color against white people, how do you pit white people against people of color? So they're they're busily creating ways to innovate strategies in terms of pitting, pitting people against one another. So I suggest I suspect that this 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 um um elevation of this particular white woman by the way, who nobody knows anything about, I suspect it has a lot to do in terms of um, increasing that uh, that consciousness among white people, folks, to make them think that, well, you know, uh, what is relevant is those things pertaining to white people, but what is unrelevant, those things that happen to others, particularly those people of color. So I think it's part of that, that, that strategy. So I think when we think about in terms of the overall decline of the U.S. economy, we think it's inevitable, you know, that uh, not only this is going to fall, but it's inevitable that there's going to be some, some conflict. And so what the capitalists want to do is to enhance that conflict, to, to, to elevate it to a level of class war, to buy them some time in terms of strategy. Of course, history is very, very clear. No matter how much they innovate strategy in terms of, you know, innovating race war, the bottom line is that change is going to come. It just means that a lot of people are going to die needlessly, but it's not going to stop change. But I think this is part of political consideration, Brother Africa, so we shouldn't be surprised that they use any and everything at their, at their, at their convenience. Uh, to facilitate, uh, you know, any any message that conveys the importance of whiteness. So I'm not surprised they would do such a thing. So now I'll close with that.
go to Brother Moses. What's your take on this phenomenon, Brother Moses? Well, um, you know, this uh, situation is uh, was uh, it was kind of a unique situation. Uh, someone who goes off on vacation with someone, and and uh, and then they come back from vacation, and the person's still missing. Um, you know, it's kind of it raises some questions. Uh, however, you know, ultimately, I mean, the arguments are well taken that um, certainly um, the fact that it's Anglo people involved and uh, there's more interest in solving that problem than uh, with people of color. And uh, that's, that's the nature of this racist system we live in. And, uh, you know, we need a, a, a political revolution uh, in order to rectify the the nature of the state itself. It's not human nature, but it's the nature of the state. And so, um, uh, but, you know, we need people who have compassion, empathy, altruism, um, people who who are involved in the struggles of, of people, day-to-day struggles. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a big, big shoe to fit. And um and um hopefully we'll be up to it. Thank you. Thank you, Moses. And now we we hear from Sister Eleanor. Well, this was Sister an Eleanor? unfortunate situation. Yes. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes we can. Yes we can. Okay. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um this was an unfortunate an unfortunate and unusual situation that this woman was traveling with her, quote, boyfriend and disappeared. He returned and she disappeared. So that was uh, created a lot of sensationalism in the media. And, of course, the media is racist. But what's interesting is that the media has become mediocre because uh, investigative journalism would allow or you would think people would look and see who's missing how, and, and had stated why this was so unusual and the fact that uh, and given some realistic data on how many people actually come up dis- as uh, missing after going on vacation with a friend very often in any situation. And certainly women as a group in this country, they're, they're, they're missing. Women and children going missing and disappearing is, is something that is often not even reported by relatives and family members, let alone ever being investigated. So we really do need a cultural revolution that engages all of the people and changes the way we look at our children and women in our communities throughout this nation and the world. So it's 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 a a real crisis and the United States right now is really <clears throat> and the world is in a midst of a cultural crisis. We saw that we elected a authoritarian fascist as the president Donald Trump and now we're moving into the Biden administration, and there's so much uh, confusion and suffering in the world. It's just 
in the United States. It's just unbelievable. But I think this woman was brought to the attention of the media, not uh, only because of her race, but the fact that she was a woman that came up missing um, while she was on vacation with a friend. And he came home and told the family that he didn't know where she was. And the family didn't tolerate that. They reported it to the police as a missing person and followed through. So, again, I think that, yes, we live in a racist society, but we need to change our attitudes in our community as uh, African Americans and as black people. If someone's missing, if someone's being abused, if something's not right and you see it, say something, report it, do something, act, and we'll see some changes. Because when you talk about the missing children and women uh, that you mentioned, Brother Africa, it made me think of uh, uh, the uh, persons that were missing uh, years ago, several women came up missing in the district, and to this day, I don't think anyone's ever figured out where they've gone. Or a little girl missing from a shelter called D.C. General, we know not where she is. So we need to change the cultural paradigm in our own community where we educate our people on how and what is appropriate behavior and how women and children and elderly and vulnerable populations should be treated. So this is uh, just should be a wake-up call to action for our people in resolving issues of missing persons before it's too late. Since I don't know, you made me think of um, something when you made a statement um, cases of things we never found out what happened to uh, many individuals who have came from our community. You made me thought about the recent case of last year of Jensen High School, this young man in Georgia, whose body was found rolled up in the, in the mat in a gym in the high school where he was dead and all his organs were gone. And nobody know what happened, and no one has been indicted yet. And I'm still amazed that... Um, how can that happen? And no one is charged with, with anything. This is a live day. You have a student who not only dead, but the organs were taken out, rolled up in a mat in a gym in the high school, and no one know nothing and no one being indicted. So uh, that's real interesting. But anyway, let's um, stay on pace. And before we take our break, I would like to have also your comment on this particular uh, phenomenon. In this particular issue, and this is the issue of the current going on uh, in mass media, and it seems to be targeted to African community. Is this whole question of um, um, what's the word for um, making African men um, to look at feminine, the feminization of African men? Um, what is the driving force behind this, and how does that impact? Um, our, our youth today in our community, this the so-called trend of feminization of African men that now taking place. You know, recently they had a very well-known basketball player, uh, Russell Westbrook. He was recently traded to a well-known basketball team, Los Angeles Lakers, and 
one of the things he just recently did was to come out as a man dressing in a in a dress and calling this fashion. You had the so-called country African singer Lil Nas X, who openly, you know, walk around acting as if he is pregnant, having a baby, and openly kissing men. So this whole question of African men feminizing them, what is this all about, Brother Haki, and what is the impact of why our community need to fight against this whole question of feminization of, of, of African men? Well, Brother Africa, not to be insensitive, but let me preface what I have to say by saying this first and foremost. Uh, people are who they are. I mean, if that's who you are, and if you're comfortable wearing a dress, hey, wear a dress. Um, to date men, to like men, that's your proclivity. I mean, you know, listen, it ain't my thing. I mean, you know, but that's your thing. That's your thing. I, you know, I don't, I don't involve myself around that kind of thing. So, you know, I really, quite frankly, you know, I really don't care. But aside from that, there are political implications for the Africa in terms of when you do that. Because, you know, one of the things that when you talk about children who are very um, impressionable, uh, you know, uh, one of the things is that uh, one of the things you don't want to do, I would imagine, as a parent or society, for that matter, is to en- enhance their confusion. Uh, one of the things is young children walking around and seeing that kind of thing, is it has to be on some level uh, not only traumatic, but has to be problematic in the sense that is child forming his or her identity, understanding precisely what they're looking at. So I think for that reason alone, I think we got to be very, very concerned about that. I think from from the system's point of view, I think the feminization of African people is preferable. I think it's clearly when you look at corporate America and you look at the, the propensity to have um, you know a lot of effeminate kind of individuals employed in corporations. So it sort of speaks to a kind of comfort with the kind of feminine, you know, kind of, uh, effeminate or effeminate mindset that's that's so prevalent, you know, in corporate America. So certainly because corporate America rules America, then I can certainly see just from a philosophical point of view, they're comfortable in terms of the, the feminization of African men in society. So I think they have a a, 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 a a desire to promote this kind of this kind of thing. So when you talk about individuals like uh like this this, this guy um um uh what is his name, Nas X or whatever they call him. When you talk about individuals like that, clearly this this, this is this is a young fellow who's concealed. I mean, with, with with a lot of contempt. Apparently, a lot of people gave him a very hard time in terms of his his sexual proclivities as a as a young boy growing up, and so he's clearly very very angry. So what he wants to do is he wants to um, shove his sexuality down the face of people as a way of getting back at folks. But you know, I, my position is that you know, listen, I can certainly understand from a human being that you want to get back at people who wrong you, and that's certainly understandable. That's a human inclination. But I think what he has to understand is that you know, the more mature way to deal with that in terms of you know his sexuality is to be comfortable in terms of who he, who, who he is, and that himself would um, you know would would in, would in fact uh, elevate you know his position in terms of you know as as an entertainer. So he don't have to come back at people for attention because he's getting it, you know, uh, as an entertainer. So I think clearly, Brother Africa, um, you know, the question is the reality is there's nothing we can do in terms of you're not going to stop that. I mean, that's just that's just a given. You're going to have that. And one of the things is very, very clear is you have increasing, when you look at the, the incarceration rates among African people, and particularly when you talk about lesbianism in, in the context of, uh, you know, increasing number of African women going to prisons, a lot of these women are coming out introducing young women to their lifestyle. Uh, now, you know, some people take a position it's a, it's a choice, and if it's a choice, then that's one thing. 
But if it's fact is something that you're born with, if you're born for, let's say, for um, uh, if that's a a, a biochemical in, in, impact in terms of who you are, and if you're born to be that way, then that's who you're going to be. But if you're doing it simply because it feels good, then there are political ramifications, and we've got to be very, very concerned about those ramifications as they impact on the lives of young children. But as far as it's concerned, they, li- they, they like nothing better than to see the feminization of the African community because with that feminization comes the kind of softness, the kind of um, uh, kind of uh, the willingness to acquiesce, the kind of the kind of mindset to go along to get along. And in that context, with those kind of values, it makes the system and uh, it, it ensures the longevity of the system, as opposed to the masculine equivalent, where you know where you where you where you where you fight back, you resist, or you take a stand. So I think as far as the system is concerned, they very much would love to see the feminization of the African community because it's in their political interest to do so. But not close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you for your perspective. Anthony, I'd like to hear your perspective on the danger and impact of the feminization of African men as it relates to the African community and people. Brother Anthony. Yes, certainly. I think it's a subtle form of uh, depopulation. And uh, the reason I say that is because African youth seeing uh, people they look up to uh, uh, dressing like women, uh, you know, uh, uh, adds confusion to their their, uh, sexual orientation That's one danger to that And the ultimate danger Is the fact that Effeminization Becomes so fashionable To an extent That uh, that, 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 that we get to a point Where we're not reproducing And uh, And uh, you know, it's it's kind of an, an insidious way of uh, 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 of uh, doing that, and uh, you know, and it's uh, labeled as uh, you know, freedom of choice or uh, or be whatever you want to be, but it's an uh, uh, but it's an, uh, a subtle attack on the African population and the diaspora. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, why now there seem to be a large uh, display of feminization of African men? You will take Brother Moses. Well, um, it's an interesting issue. I don't know where this, how this issue even came up. I mean, I mean, I don't know if we're having some kind of homophobic moment or what, but <laughs> oh, um you know, I'm I'm not having problems with uh, feminization of African men. Uh, um, I don't know how this how this came about. I, I um, what what is what is the real issue? Uh, uh, I'm I'm just a little ignorant of this. I'm sorry. Thank you. Okay, Sister Lenore, is there an issue a problem with me being? African men being feminized? 
Well, Brother Africa, um, that the rap singer that's walking around pregnant, that did the triple six thing and that kind of thing, is offensive to my cultural aesthetic. However, I I think that uh, us giving him attention is really inappropriate. I think that the issue of the treatment of Haitians and the fact that Haitians are having to you know, have endured uh, an assassination of a president and have been fleeing to countries like Chile and things like that. And that President uh, Sebastian uh, Pinera in Chile was accepting them, but since the pandemic has not been accepting the uh, Haitian, Dominican Republic, and uh, uh, Venezuelan, uh, refugees and that they're attempting to come to this United States and are being the whipped, the Haitians being whipped by horseback uh, government employees that are working for uh, uh, some kind of uh, immigration federal or state agency is something worthy of our attention. However, to further grandize this young man who's just gotten filthy rich off of uh, his uh, provocative uh, uh, presence. He started out with the cowboy YouTube video and he became uh, known worldwide and then he went into the triple six thing and, and now he's walking around pregnant. We can't pay attention to every uh, uh, person and and address things that we know are unhealthy, and we're certainly not homophobic, so that's not the issue. But the reality is that this is not worthy of our attention. It 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 is just a waste of this wonderful venue to focus on someone like that. And as far as the feminization of black men, um, I think we talk, it's so important that we raise our children properly and we look at how we are treating our children right now. And uh, I can't express that enough so that when they make choices or when they grow, that they will be solid, good, educated revolutionary human beings concerned with important issues, how they treat other human beings, protecting the planet, you know, uh, making sure that uh, us adults reduce our carbon footprint and uh, reducing this global warming and, and, and taking some uh, uh, action to reduce the atrocities that we've seen since in this pandemic. For example, since this pandemic, the most vulnerable people all died first. We see there's a crisis in nursing homes. More people died in nursing homes than died in prison. Neither should have died from this coronavirus, but their death tolls are ridiculous. And we're going through a cultural crisis. That's really all you're saying, Brother Africa, and I agree with you that we are going through a cultural crisis, and it's up to us to address it in our communities by educating our people. And if one young man decides to become uh, uh, wealthy 
over being provocative as an artist and and, and extreme. Uh, we shouldn't pay attention to it. On some level, I think him walking around pregnant is is, is demonstrates a, a hatred of women or fosters that. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous and a waste of of of. of um, this valuable form, and I hope I haven't taken up too much time, Brother Africa, in, in my statement. I think uh, the issue of how the Haitian refugees are being handled and the fact that they're no longer being uh, accepted in what the, many Haitians are called the oasis of South America, Chile, because there was an earthquake there, an assassination of a president, People say it's easier to buy bullets. I read an article in the Washington Post, and it is to buy food. So, um, and they're facing discrimination where their cultural discrimination in 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 the global South in Chile, as well as political discrimination, and identified only as one thing: the blacks. Something's wrong when. You can't be Brother Africa. You can't be Brother Haki. You're just going to be identified as 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 uh, the blacks, not even as the Haitians. So you know uh, we should focus on that and uh, try to uh, keep this kind of imagery out of this form, unless we want to examine it. Uh, and do an art critique, whether or not this is high art or whether or not this is just a gimmick for fame. And I think it's just a gimmick for fame. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I have an interest in art. If someone wanted to see something interesting that black men are doing in art, I'd say look at Sherman I. Fleming Jr.'s work uh, and how he has been dealing with the uh, reality of being a black man in America. He's been doing that since the 70s. Let's look at his art. Let's discuss it. Maybe compare it to the uh, the the artist that you're discussing this evening. And uh, wearing chaps and a cowboy hat is how he got where he's going. Where he's got, and then doing the triple six thing with the snake. I mean, he's getting great publicity. We don't need to support him. There's so many artists that need our attention. Um, I, I tell you, uh, I was thinking of uh, uh, a Haitian artist that moved to Chile. He was when he was 36. He was from Port-au-Prince. Uh, let me see if I can find his name for us. He's a painter. His name is Emmanuel Louis. So maybe let's critique his work, and and this other stuff isn't worthy of of my my support as an art critic. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience. This is Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. As you define it, we're going to stand behind me. We're going to interrupt your break, and when we come back. We're going to get a few minutes from our panelists, analysts, on what to play this week as it relates to what's going on in our world. 
in the community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through. My journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, 
shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go. Everywhere we go When the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey Yeah Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
That's right. The world is on fire, but I'm not quite sure who's the ones who did it. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. We will continue our discussion on what's going on now community in the world, and we ask each one of our political panelists and analysts, just give us a snapshot, two or three minutes of some of the most important things that may have taken place this week, and um, that they would like to share with our listening audience. We'll start off with you, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community? Yeah, I wanted to do a piece on uh, young brother Benjamin Alajube out of, uh, out, of the, out of South London in terms of the kind of abuse he suffered and tied into the general pattern in terms of police abusing, you know, black youth or African youth. Uh, but I'll hold off for next week because it's considerably, it's, it's considerable, so i hold off next week to do it. But in the event, the thing I got on mind currently is this, um, you know, uh, they're talking about the spending bill where they're talking about spending $3.5 billion. Of course, the reality is that the amount of money they're actually talking about is considerably less. But, of course, at $3.5 trillion, $3.5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but that's similar. It's certainly not what they're going to spend in terms of a particular spending program. But this program entails spending on things like health care, uh, pre-K, you know, for, indig- for indigent uh, for families, and for spending money on a green economy. But what I find interesting about the Africa is the opposition by um, democratic leadership. I, I find this very, very interesting. Uh, Joe Manachin, uh, he's, he's a representative out of uh, West Virginia, one of the poorest states in the Union. He's adamantly opposed to the spending of money. I find that very interesting. Of course, the elevated question becomes why is he uh, opposed to something that is good for the economy? If, in fact, he's going to spend, let's say, $1.5 billion for the economy, it's going to have a residual impact, a very positive impact in terms of overall function of the economy. So as the economy expands, it creates the possibility to move more, do more things for the for the people in the country. So why would this this politician re- reject this this idea of spending money? Uh, clearly, uh, one of the reasons why he opposes this this spending bill is because he has large investments in both oil and uh, pharmaceutical investments. So if he invests in this bill, he stands to lose a lot of money from investments, particularly when it comes to health care. So one of the things he don't want to do. He doesn't want to rock their boat. He wants things to the system they are because currently, as the system stands, he stands to make a lot of money from health care, and particularly in the era of COVID-19. Uh, in terms of pharmaceuticals, I mean, the same thing applies. Uh, you know, um, one of the things that he, he tends to uh, – well, well, I'm sorry, in terms of oil investments, he tends to make a lot of money in terms of oil investments. But specifically, when we talk about pharmaceuticals, he tends to make a lot of money in terms of the health care the issue. But in terms of one reason why he also opposes it is, in fact, the oil investments. He has a tremendous amount of oil investments. And one of the things he's concerned about, if you, if you put that kind of money into the economy, you decrease that amount of money into, into investments in oil. And, of course, if you do that, then you affect his dividends. So he understands that uh, his profits are directly tied in terms of the profitability of oil industries. And so, therefore, he wants to uh, do all he can to make sure he protects the oil industry. So clearly, this is the opportunism that exists, uh, you know, in, in political circles, in, in, in you know, not not just in America, but throughout the world. And so, when you realistically talk about politicians bringing about real change, the bottom line is that they are beholden. And finally, I just have to mention this, and I'm sad to say, but one of the things, you know, I, I you know, I don't have a lot of um, respect for, for most politicians. You know, I had a great deal of respect um, 
for AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, I had a lot of respect for her in, in the sense that at least she was from the idea and she would say things that were, that were um, quite important things and significant things in which uh, people could rally around. Well, her recently, she, when she, she changed her vote from no to yes on the uh, giving a billion dollars to the Zionist regime of Israel, uh, that was a step too far for me. And, uh, you know, I had to call out on that one because clearly, you know, what she did there um, clearly illustrates the kind of a hold a special interest has over these politicians. And one of the things I didn't expect, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to be one of those politicians who, who subside, I mean, not to subside, but one of those politicians who give in to the uh, demands of special interests. She did. And so, therefore, you know, I'm sad to say that, you know, it just underscores the reality that, you know, these politicians are beholden to special interests. And as long as they're beholden to special interests, this notion that we can, in fact, uh, uh, utilize politicians to bring about some redress in terms of the fundamental systemic issues that negatively impact the citizenry, I think for us to think that would be very, very foolish. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Uh, let's see. Uh, so, uh, several, uh, several things. One, uh, let's see. There's the, the violence being perpetrated against the, uh, uh, Africans who, who due to uh, propaganda and uh, the misery they're suffering in their own countries are t- trying to immigrate in. However, I think the events of this week shows that there are officials in uh, in uh, Homeland Security that do not want us here. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have... Um, and then uh, there are people. Uh, let's see that are that are dying uh, from curable uh, from diseases, but that are curable. And uh, the quality of health care in our community is adversely affecting us, and that is because of a lack of organization. And uh, lack of uh, and uh, organization. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses gives a snapshot of what's going on in your world community as reflects this past week. It's been an interesting week. Um, I think um, most importantly, People are uniting around various issues, uh, demonstrating, and uh, um, it's good to see consciousness in action. Um, I think. Uh, yeah. Want to leave right here? Uh, um, um, I the one BC had a had a. And right to income rally, I believe on Thursday was supposed to happen on Thursday, uh, going from the Martin Luther King Memorial to uh, to Wilson Building and there in D.C. and having a little rally around income, the right to income for everyone. And uh, so, 
I was I was unfortunate was able to miss it wasn't able to make it. And then uh, today there was a, a, a caravan and rally for the Cuban uh, blockade to stop the blockade, and uh, there was a, a caravan and a rally. I was able to make the rally, and uh, uh, there was people there who consciousness about the need to stop the embargo around Cuba and and. Uh, and, and allow the Cubans to have self-determination up to and including independence and sovereignty, which 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 the U.S. has denied them from the from the very beginning. And um, other than those two things, uh, the Biden administration is is, is vacillating and and uh, trying to talk the talk, but. Uh, it's hard for them to to walk the walk when it's capitalism is is the dominant feature of the economy and and uh, you know so all the the do gooderism uh, uh, is 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 negated by the facts and I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And briefly, a reflection of what went on what what went on your will. And the community of Sister Eleanor. Well, <clears throat> Brother Africa, I um, was concerned about the budget, uh, the fact that uh, there's been so much uh, 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 struggle on the Hill, and that uh, here we have an opportunity to improve education and health care in this country, and in particular, uh, the several billion dollars that they wanted to take away from health care that would impact the elderly. As I said earlier, we can see that there is a crisis in this country because of the, and, and we learned that just from seeing the death toll during this pandemic in nursing homes. The workers are earning far too little the, the patients are treated very poorly. The nutrition is dismal. And now is a time for the first time in, in a half a century or more that this country is taking a look at the quality of health care, education, and the treatment of the elderly. And we see that there were folks trying to knock those uh, funds out of uh, the budget. So the Gray Panthers held a rally on Thursday at the uh, Department of Health at at the Hubert Humphrey Building, 200 uh, Independence Avenue in the District of Columbia to address the issue of uh, the of the conditions in nursing homes and the quality of care that the elderly and disabled are receiving. And uh, we're calling for higher wages for workers, better training and those things. And um, just to recap uh, what we had talked about earlier, that young woman, Gabby, who was disappeared, I, I do wonder why, the FBI has put so much in this, but I'm glad in that they went to her lover's home, uh, family's home, uh, her lover or her her friend, Brandon, uh, 
her travel partner, partner Brandon's home to try to get DNA evidence. Uh, in addition, I, I uh, hope the, that this tax increase for the rich actually happens. I hope they begin to have to pay taxes in this country and that there will be some relief in the United States for our Haitian brothers and sisters. Uh, I understand that in Chile, uh, between 2018 and now, there are a total of 1.5 million immigrants who were able to settle and, and gain residency and legal status in Chile. So we see uh, that can be done. I realize that's a small number when you consider the number of folks that have migrated to the U.S. in the last 10 years. We see that the Honduran population has gone up 128%, for example. So uh, people are on the move. But right now the biggest thing going on is the budget and creating a greener, healthier society to reduce global warming and protecting the health of our people, educating our children. Universal kindergarten, all-day kindergarten is a no-brainer. It works for society. We want to grow and raise intelligent, well-educated children. It should start with pre-K, a full-time pre-K and standardized education for all our children across the nation. So that that's it. And uh, I hope the rich really do get a tax increase and have to start paying taxes. I hope it's not just lip service from the Biden administration. And uh, I'm pretty sure in closing that the young woman whose body they've already found in the FBI visiting, uh, 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 I think it was Brian, uh, her friend's name was Brian, I I hope that they uh, resolve this and it can uh, uh, be resolved what happened to her and that there is enough information and DNA uh, matching done to figure out just what happened and who's responsible for her death. And uh, I hope that we can begin to investigate and find out what happened to other people. Brother Africa, you talked about the young man in uh, Georgia, the student in Georgia in a high school where his organs were harvested. Organ harvesting is something that's been going on in our world now for at least a couple of decades that I know of, where the rich are seeking kidneys and organs for themselves, and 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 it's become a murderous uh, proposition. And uh, we really need to address that and how could it happen in a high school where there are officers on duty and everyone has to sign in or be admitted that's not a student there. I don't think a student had the capacity to perform surgery and remove a student's organs. So that's a a horrifying crime happening on uh, public property. 
in a in a school in a high school in this United States. Shocking. And but this is why school was open and functioning. That's when you make it more amazing. But anyway, panelists, we'd like to thank you all right now. What we're gonna do make a quick um transition to a revolutionary break and when we come back we're gonna discuss part three of sports, slavery and liberation. This is Africa on the move. Yes, let's stop the balance. We all agree tonight, all of the speakers have agreed that America has a very serious problem. Not only does America have a very serious problem, but our people have a very serious problem. America's problem is It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid, so to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together, so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause, the way we live is positive, we don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 one and shot, who's the blame? Headlines, front page, and rap, the name. MC's the light, here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before time. Triple brother's life with a knife, that's right. Cry, cause you died of trifling death when he left his very last breath. Was I slept to watch his step? Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. Cause that's. Level. We can't speak anything for the devil. The enemy 
educated, evaluated, thoughts of the past have faded. The only thing left is the memories of our belated. And I hate it when someone dies to get all hurt up for a silly gold chain. Rock chump, word up. It doesn't make you a big man. And to one ain't going, this your brother man. And you don't know that's part of the plan. Why? Because rap music is in full demand. Understand? My name is Jeff Ice, man, not a prankster. I was known as the gangster. But believe me, that is no fun. The time is now to unite everyone. You don't have to be soft to be for peace. Robbing and killing and murdering is the least. You don't have to be chained by the beast. But party people, it's time I release. Hey, yo, here's the situation. Idiocy, nonsense, violence. Not a good policy, therefore, we must ignore. Fight and bust it. Heaven's at the door, so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together before we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call him animal, Mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove them wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take keys before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. Pray. Heavy deep, deep in- that's right. I never had to run for a Ku Klux Klan. I shouldn't have to run for my African man. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. We're discussing our final segment of Part 3, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. We have political panelists, panelists and analysts. And if you would like to join us, we encourage you to dial 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Panelists, you know, um, we look at societies, each society has its own way of producing its own institutions. And when you talk about creating institutions, you talk about establishing a vehicle that transforms values, information on a longer and broader means that affects the thinking and the well-being of the people. So when we look at this capitalist system, the question for today is, how does sports play a role in maintaining the slavery, maintaining the institution of slavery? You know, many times we have perception sports as being an equalizer, an equal opportunity. But let's talk about this a little bit more critical. There was um, a sports writer, last name of Roden. He wrote a book called The Millionaire Slave, The Million Dollar Slave. And he talked about sports and slavery. Is there a relationship and a similar function as we look at the institution of slavery and institution of sports today? That's my first panel. First question to my panelists today as we discuss this, this particular concept, sports, slavery, and liberation. Brother Anthony, start us off in addressing the question. Uh, yes. Um there is uh, you know that there there is a double standard uh for uh for Africans when it comes to sports and uh it makes it makes it harder for them uh to uh to participate in sports uh because of the racism and bigotry that exists around them as well as the scarcity of resources uh also uh let's see they're uh they're held to a different standard of conduct conduct than their your counterparts, and this has gone on for decades. 
and 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 it and it, it, it uh, it's become more subtle as the number of uh, media personalities and uh, journalists who cover sports are increasingly African, but it still goes on. And uh, athletes in particular lead a fishbook, uh, fishbowl existence and the fact that, they, uh, that they're held to standards of conduct that are different from uh, their European and Asian counterparts. And they're persecuted much more severely for doing the same, uh, you know, for engaging in the same acts uh, that their European counterparts engage in. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, many people will believe that um, when you look at slavery, yeah, Africans are in the field producing and, and creating a product. And they got some kind of label or cause for their so-called label, and an exchange of being a worker to to the capitalist class. Well, when you look at that particular employee-employer relationship, you have very similar to the same type of relationship today when we talk about sports. Many people argue and would say sports is a rich man game, a rich man entertainment. Sports is a rich man entertainment. People will argue that if you're making millions of dollars, they don't see how one has been exploited. Can you speak to the dynamic between being a millionaire slave in sports, its relationship of this whole question of control, this question of ownership? Because your owners who own these sports teams, they see their workers as a form of property. They control the essence of most of their lives that people don't realize. And they are definitely exploited. For example, it was reported during um, the Earl where Dr. J was playing with the Philadelphia 76ers that for every $1 million he make, the owner was making $10 million off of it. So is there a relationship between sports and slavery, Brother Hockey, and how are we still being used to be entertain entertainers for the rich and still being treated like we are their property. Brother Hackey, your response. Yeah, well, there is a correlation between um, slavery and sports. Uh, I think first and foremost we got to understand that one of the things, you know, when we, when we talk about sports, essentially what we're talking about is entertainment. So why does entertainment exist? It exists for one reason to give people an outlet. Uh, if you think back to doing the times of Rome, and you look at it in terms of things like the great gladiator fights, uh, or you look at the, the lion fights, all of that was geared toward the entertainment of the population. So in order for Rome to maintain, in order for Rome leadership to maintain the dominance, they had to pacify the people. Well, how do you pacify them? You give them entertainment. You have them, get them happy. You give them something they can relate to. And so when we look at America, I mean, sports in America in a, in a contemporary context, uh, clearly, you know, sports are given, uh, you know, to the population as a means of control. And so as long as you keep people happy, uh, then clearly uh, the people who positions of power, the capitalist class in particular, benefits greatly from that. So when you think about the fact that these, big, these, these athletes are paid lots of money, relatively speaking, 
of course, compared to the owners, they're not making any money at all. But relative to you and I and to the rank and file out there, athletes make a lot of money. And so they don't have a problem in terms of paying athletes a lot of money, but here's the issue. The athletes that they pay a lot of money to are not that most, the most, it's not the most enlightened athlete, and that's the reason they do that. One of the things that we got to understand, there was also a book published uh, uh, by um, uh, he's a sports writer. I can't make his name on the tip of my tongue. But anyway, he wrote a book, and he talked about the fact in terms of you're, you're more intelligent, uh, you're more intelligent uh, athletes don't make it to the professional ranks. Despite their ability, their prowess on the athletic field, they don't make it to, uh, to professional sports. The question becomes why. Well, very clearly, if, in fact, if you, if, if you give it most intelligent athletes, if you have access to that kind of capital, then they're going to use that capital to, 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 to enhance or to build their communities. You don't want that. So what they want is those athletes who are ill-enlightened, those athletes who don't understand how the world operates, pay them lots of money because what they're going to do, they're not going to seek to build a community. They're not going to even understand the issues of the community. They're going to buy houses, cars, and women. And this is precisely what they want. But just in terms of disparities, brother, in Africa, in terms of earnings, one of the things when you, you know, one of the things that when you talk about um, during the time of Dr. J, and which is current, and which we also exist today, is when you talk about the fact that uh, these these guys, these these, these uh, owners, are multi-billionaires, and if you talk about the marketplace in terms of being being compensated based upon what you're worth, then clearly these these athletes are being exploited. These athletes are not getting paid close to what they should be getting paid based upon who they bring to the stadiums, you know, uh, all the, the, the kind of market, the kind of price of tickets that people pay to see these guys perform. So if you talk about the marketplace, then clearly they're being exploited. And so this notion that they're getting more than they're, than they're worth is bullshit, excuse me, it's, it's BS. Uh, clearly when you talk about someone like, um, someone like um, uh, 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 Bill Gates, or or, or 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 Musk. You talk about these guys on being worth hundreds of billions of dollars. No human being is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. No human being can create that kind of productivity to justify hundreds of billions of dollars. But yet, no one would ever say that what they earn is not uh, is, is inappropriate or is not justifiable. But these guys make a few hundred dollars, and people start raising hell because, by and large, the thing is that this 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 this, this, this kind of dissipation reminds a lot of people. That if they're, if they're athletes, well, number one, they can't be that bright, so based upon that alone, they shouldn't be compensated. And secondly, this notion that, uh, you know, because they're athletes, their job is to perform, then that should be, a, a, that should be a, a, a fine line in terms of how much they can make. So, uh, but clearly, just in terms of, which is, in terms of Dr. J's example that you raised, but after you're absolutely right, that the exploitation is, 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 is ongoing, and, and, and there's no question. When you look at athletes, you've got to look at them in the context of being property. They are property. Uh, this is why they treat them the way they treat them. Uh, not only do they treat them like that in terms of when they have to practice, uh, but also just in terms of their daily, everyday life. Uh, if they do certain things and they have actually clauses in their contract, if they, if they go to a club that's ill-advised, then they're something to be fined lots of money simply for going to a, cl- a, a club. They don't have the opportunity to actually to, 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 self, to, to self-exilize or to be all they can be based upon you know, what they want to do uh, the development of their own life. The, the, the owners determine what that is. And so if that's not property, I don't know what it is. So we can say that they, these elephants are, in fact, an extension of, 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 of slaves. And that's precisely what they are. And someone will tell you that. Jim Brown will tell you that. An extension of slaves. Uh, 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 Eric, uh, Eric um, to safety, used to play with um, Eric um, 
He used to play with the uh, with the uh, with uh, with the um, the quarterback. Uh, the brother got cut by the New England Patriots. Uh, What's that brother name? The quarterback got cut by the Patriots. Um, the quarterback. Uh, um, oh, Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Cam Newton. Cam they used to say, yeah, they used to say, uh, Eric, I think it was Eric Allen, but he was a defensive back. A very intelligent brother. Uh, you know, uh, so, the, you know, uh, they would tell you, and, um, uh, uh, even Calvinette, they would tell you, you know, we are, we are in fact slaves. And they are in fact slaves. They are property of, of the owners. And so clearly, you know, uh, you know, not to diminish, you know, or disparage, you know, athletes in terms of their contributions on, on, and off, on, the, on the field. The bottom line is that they do serve a political interest, the political interest of the powerful. In that context, they are not free to speak out. They're not free uh, to, 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 to mobilize. They're not free to organize simply because as far as the owners are concerned, you know, they're doing something that's out of bounds. And if they do such a thing, then clearly their money is jeopardized. So clearly uh, they are perceived as property, and there's no question about that. Not close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Sister Eleanor, I'd like to get your response to a recent article that was written from a sports magazine titled Insider. Theme of this article, and the audience, if you ever get a chance, please Google this article up and read it, because it offers so many lessons that we need to teach our youth who want to be an athlete and what they are really dealing with. Most people don't understand that this institution that we call sports is an institution that will reflect the value and the norms of the type of political economic system that you live under. In this case, it's capitalism. It has all of its virtues and values. Now, the title of the article is The Saints Cut a Veteran Player an Hour Before His $3 Million Salary Became Guaranteed Because He Wouldn't Take a Pay Cut. Sister Eleanor, when you read this article, what things you took from that, Sister Eleanor? Well, uh, thank you, um, Brother Africa. When I read that article, and it was within hours of uh, uh, this man's contract becoming a permanent contract for $3.5 million, and suddenly his his whole life was pulled from under him. And he was very successful uh, player for the Saints. Not only was it a demonstration of his slavery, because his salary was marginal. It was only $3.5 million. And the owners of these teams are billionaires, and these, these games uh, just earn billions of dollars the activity of, of of football the NFL it's the money maker and it is in fact um, a form for wealthy persons they are the owners of these teams and these athletes play at their will so when they when the Saints terminated this guy not only did he lose his uh, life's earnings and and the probability of being picked up is very slim for him. But it sent a message to all the other young athletes. You better line up and obey or you could have this state too. And you see teams now 
recently I saw where I heard the Washington team talking about why they got rid of a player. And they were talking about building a young team, and that young team would uh, grow and develop. What they're saying is not only are they developing a young team that knows how to play with each other, but they will obey. And their salaries are nominal compared to the ticket sales, the uh, all the other things associated with the NFL, the clothing. All, it's just so much. It's phenomenal. It's beyond my scope. So these people are, uh, in effect, uh, slaves. And it is true, the amount of money they earn is far beyond my scope or my earning potential at this moment. However, they are not paid a reasonable salary. Their salary is not reflected uh, in what they, uh, in, in, in terms of production. If you think of a worker and they receive uh a certain amount of money for their their labor. It's certainly not being done, and it certainly wasn't being done. This young man's $3.5 million salary was a nominal salary at most, and they took that away from him, and he was an excellent player. And it was uh, the owners speaking to him and all other players and to the the industry that you are disposable and there's always someone to replace you and you aren't worth any more than I say you are because these, you know, the NFL doesn't have a union. It's not organized labor. There's nobody out there just working for these players to make sure that their health care and their health and safety is maintained. It's a dangerous sport and they're getting paid nominal salaries. This one this one man, this $3.5 million, was definitely a nominal salary. So he wasn't receiving reasonable wages, and he should have – he never expected to be cut hours before his contract would become permanent. I'm sure he thought that he was safe, but nope, and it was a horrible message sent to – all of the players. It was just shocking. I I didn't realize how much uh, abuse there was in the NFL until reading that article and a few others. It's it's shocking and outrageous. And the fans apparently think it's okay. Finish your thoughts, Miss Eleanor. And the and 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 uh, and the fans. I I I used to think of this as was something good that the people uh, enjoyed, and it was a the people's game. But actually, it is something that rich men uh, 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 seem to control an industry controlled by rich rich men, and I assume they are generally white men. And I understand why Trump wanted the cabinet to be fired because he these were the men that he knew and he knew these players were uh expendable and uh they they are definitely being trained uh with the firing of this this uh Saints player 
It sent a message through the industry for current and future players to remember your place and remember that you have no bargaining chips. You have no rights. You are an employee at will. You are less than my nanny, in effect. Not my nanny's uh, brother, <laughs> brother Africa, but the nanny of the of the uh, owner. In other words, you know, he has uh, staff in his home that aren't as dispensable as his uh, football players. So it's, it's it's just outrageous. And yes, they are slaves. They are they Thank are you, not paid for wages. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And for those who want to read this article, the football player in this article that we are speaking to who lost his whole salary one hour before everything would have been guaranteed. And I think it also was on the day of his birthday, if I'm not mistaken, is Latavius Murray. He was the yes. backup running back for the New Orleans Saints. But he was a very good running back, and he earned his money worth and the rationale for cutting him was because he refused to take a pay cut. Well, if you have a contract, you approve that you worth his money, why would you later on force someone or even ask someone to take a pay cut when this is what they earn? You know, one of the things that came from this particular article and many others, it goes to show you that these contracts that are written on paper are not really worth a dime. They put on paper, they're losing that these ball players are getting this money, and many times, none of this stuff is guaranteed. They can just lose everything, and that's the one this sucker. So I thought that was interesting. Brother Moses, what did you take from this article? Your response to this article, Brother Moses? Certainly it was outrageous. Um, uh, I don't. I can't add anything or take anything away from what's been said. Uh, that, you know, the, this capitalism uh, and this, football team is a business and you know the capitalists are owners and and uh, they own the players uh, they own the contract they make the decisions and uh, you know it's a dog eat dog cutthroat type situation uh, uh, and uh, the players the players need need the unions and uh and uh, they have player representatives, I know, but they need they need more and more representation, more and more unionization, and more and more politicization of their situation. Uh, but uh, you know, it's, I don't know that uh, that you know there's any solution to the problem uh, uh, because the. I don't know, you know, state ownership of of of, of sports. I don't know if that's feasible. Uh, I don't know what the the ultimate solution to the problem is. Is the industry that you know that is rather independent of regulations and. Uh, uh, well, bro- brother Moses, I can say in response to your solution to the problem, no, you're not going to get rid of the exploitation. In essence, but in terms of the degree of exploitation, you might can make some progress there. 
And I say that because it's in the nature of how contracts and negotiations are, are, are negotiated. For example, it's ironic in baseball. Baseball has the highest salary and, and some of the most, some of the best guaranteed contracts for their athletes. Now, what is it about baseball where they have contract uh, basically totally guaranteed and they're structured in a way where there's a high probability that these ball players not only will they get more money, but they're guaranteed to receive their money and become difficult for owners to just take their away from them um, once they assign it. What is it about baseball players that have this kind of security and your basketball and football players don't not, they do not? Football is the worst. So I think one is, you know, you want to look at why these contracts are different in nature and more guaranteed in baseball or in hockey, sports where they're predominantly European people, and other sports that are not dominant European people, the contracts are structured written in a way where really value very little on paper. So I think that's one area we could we need to take a look at it. Brother um, Haki, your response to this article? Yeah, well, I, I just let me just respond directly to uh, Brother Moses, and the whole point is that certainly if the state uh, gained control over these over these sports entities, it couldn't be any worse. That's for sure. Uh, certainly, if the states own it, then we have certainly more grounds in terms of grievances, in terms of in terms of you know how business is conducted, to you know how they undercompensate the uh, athletes. I think also, um, uh, you know, they have unions. Uh, you know, uh, in the NFL, the problem is that the unions not very, very strong. To, to a large extent, the unions the unions are a extension of the owners, and so therefore, in order for these union reps to keep their job and maintain good standing, they have to capitulate. They have to essentially uh, negotiate in a manner which is which is um, a benefit you know, to the owners. So unless you're going to have create some kind of union which has some backbone, which means that the players themselves have to get behind the union, all of them, they have to get behind and have to support it. To the extent that if they if they got rid of the union leadership, that work or the players are willing to leave and not play, that's the only way you're going to get the kind of uh, leadership that you need when it comes to unions. Uh, you know, but the thing is, brother African, and I'm just close to saying this. I I think that you know uh, you know one of the things. You know, um, you know. Uh, yeah, I was trying earlier. I was trying to think of uh, Dave Zarin, and he wrote a very good book in terms of propensity, in terms of you know, uh, the very brightest athletes don't make it to the NFL, and it's very, very interesting because the owners think ahead, and they're just as racist as anybody else, and so therefore they understand that if you give some some African uh, that kind of resources, then the opportunity to change things becomes immense, and so what you want to do. It's a non-economic base. So they always come to the African community. It's not an African community economic base. So those who do manage to make some some capital, uh, because they want to maintain that capital, are hesitant to actually to invest in the African community in terms of building it, because they don't want to be perceived as revolutionary, and so therefore they don't. So clearly, uh, Dave Jarin has a point in terms of you know this, this propensity in terms of these these. These, these 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 business owners, when they, these organizations, when they monitor these guys guys in college, they want to know how bright they are, what kind of activities are they engaged in, are they socially conscious, uh, do they give a damn about issues like poverty, about inequality? Those, they want to know all that stuff. 
And if you care too much about those those issues, then you don't become a professional a professional player. So as a professional player, one of the things you got to do, you got to disguise or not talk about what you really feel inside. If you if you support those things, then you got to keep it to yourself. Because if you talk about them, if you express a willingness to support those kind of issues, then you don't last long. You want you're not going to make you're not going to make it in professional sports. And so therefore, these athletes have learned that they got to keep their thoughts to themselves. And unfortunately. Even a lot of them, even after they start making money, they still stick to that script, and uh, you know and they don't say anything. Uh, but you do have those who are making money and say, "Well, listen, I made a, little, a few coins, and so now, you know, listen, if you if you cut me, if I if you trade me, get rid of me, it's okay because I'm I'm comfortable. It's no problem. I'm still free to express the kind of issues that that impact the African community, and I can do it in a way in which I know when I speak, people are going to listen because of the platform that I hold." Clearly, you know, uh, there's not a great deal of respect when it comes to these athletes as far as the owner's concerned, and particularly when you start talking about the kind of head injuries football players endure. So when you're talking about, you know, some guy weighing 250-pound solid muscle, you know, taking on some guy who weighs, you know, 195 pounds, you know, that's, come on, that kind of collision, or two guys weighing over 350 pounds colliding to each other head first, of course it's going to be some damage to the brain. And the mere fact that uh, I know that and still has been very, very uh, resistant in terms of funding former enough players for, for, for that kind of little kind of uh, brain injuries speaks violence in terms of just how much lack of respect they do have, you know, for the for, for athletes. So it's incumbent upon athletes themselves to take a stand and fight for what is their best interest. But it takes a consciousness, and what they're conveniently doing is weeding out any consciousness. So you have a lot of players who don't have consciousness, so therefore they can never get together to create the kind of um, union, the kind of leadership they need in terms of truly being compensated and treated like human beings. Brother Anthony, in the same article, they they talk about how uh, dishonest these owners are and how they use ballplayers as a means to an end. For example, there was a former football player, Mike Goley, who played with Miami Dolphins. He got injured, and when he recuperated from an injury, he wanted to come back to test out, you know, his how well he can perform. The owner told him that he needs to sign a waiver that he's healthy enough to play again. He signed a waiver, and you know what the response was? They cut him right away after all those years of playing for him and playing the football. This is what they've done to them. Is this not slave like Brother Anthony? It is. And also and also uh in addition, players uh are 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 expected to conform and to please the interests of uh of uh you know uh of the fans, which are European males for the most part. Uh give an example of that. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf uh, was a career was cut short because uh, he escorted views openly, and uh, and uh, he and uh, his career was cut short because of that. Uh, what uh, for those who do not recall. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf refused to stand for the national anthem 
when it was being when it was being played, and uh, eventually, someone in the media noticed this and reported on it, and uh, he became isolated uh, because he took this step in isolation uh, from uh, other players because they tend to toe the line. And um, the message I want to, you know, convey here is that in order to be a professional athlete, um, you are expected to conform uh, to the standards and tastes of uh, European fans, basically. And to add to that point, your point, Brother Anthony, we have another good example of that when you talk about sports and slavery is the behavior how they dealt with Craig Hodges, who was a basketball player for the Chicago Bulls. Also, I hear Haki talk about this case, and Brother Haki, I'll let you take over for a second. Can you explain the phenomena of how they dealt with Craig Hodges as relates to, one, how he carried himself in terms of dress code and what he wore to the White House when he was having an African dashiki, and also the question of him asking athletes, well-known athletes such as Michael Jordan, to go to the African community and be a role model, and how they dealt with Craig Hodges. Brother Haki, you can articulate um, that particular story. Yeah, Craig Hodges is one of those rare athletes. I mean, he knew who he was. I mean, he was proud of who he was. Uh, he was a proud African, and uh, he, didn't, he, he didn't conceal that. I mean, he, he, he was out front about that. And he was a very intelligent African, and so therefore he was always on their radar. But what got him in real trouble with management was when he approached people like Michael Jordan and other, and other accomplished athletes, and he said, listen, why don't we take our resources and let us build uh, institutions throughout these cities throughout the country? Because if we don't redirect the way our young people think, they're going to turn on each other and kill and destroy each other out of ignorance. So we got the means to create, uh, create a situation where we can prevent that. So let's hop out, let's get on board, and let's do that. Well, Michael Jordan being the slave that he is, of course, he, he, he resented the fact that, uh, that Craig Hodges would uh, make such a proposal. As opposed to dealing with Craig Hodges like a man and saying, listen, Craig, I hear what you're trying to do, but I'm not interested in doing it, uh, even like a man would do. Uh, he went to the management. He went to his master's, and he said, master's? And they said, yes, boy. He said, uh... Uh, there's a slave on the plantation, and he's talking about using that money to create institutions for, for African kids, you know, in diverse cities throughout America. And now, boss, you know that's not a good thing. And, uh, you know, I told him, no, 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 we can't do that. And he said, well, thank you, boy. So I pat him on the head, you know, send him back out there to play, play basketball. Well, as a consequence, um, Craig Hodges, you know, he was blacklisted. Um, the owners got together and said, damn. We got a uh, we got the uh, we got a revolutionary among the ranks. We we got to, we got to destroy this quickly, and they move quickly to they move quickly to get rid of Craig Hodges. I mean, keep in mind, Craig Hodges was the best three point shooter in all of basketball, so that alone should qualify him to stay. But the mere fact that he advocated, he showed that he had a consciousness that he willing to use his money to enhance the the, the, the well being of the African community, he had to go. They blacklisted him from the NBA. This brother couldn't get a job shining shoes in the NBA. And, of course, Michael Jordan became a star. You know, he became the envy of America. You know, everybody wanted to be like Mike. 
because Mike being the consummate slave that he is, you know, he want they want other people to emulate, particularly African youth, they want to emulate him to be like Mike. Don't be like uh, Craig Hodges. Craig Hodges is radical. He's a revolutionary. He actually trying to make things right. Uh, we can't have that in America. We simply can't have that. And so, therefore, as a consequence, uh, Craig Hodges was kicked out of kicked out of basketball. Uh, so clearly, you know, Craig Hodges was exceptional. He was different. I mean, he was the kind of individual, you know, that uh, you know, he you know, he understood the the, the what his, his behavior did impact you. And so he was careful how he carried himself. And you have guys like him and Dwayne, Dwayne Wade. Uh, you know, uh, you have other athletes, you know, who carry themselves in a way because they understand, unlike Charles Barkley, who understand that you still look up. You do look up to them, and so therefore Craig Hodges understood them. So therefore he was careful in terms of how he he portrayed himself. He was careful in terms of the kind of people he hung around with. He was careful in terms of the kind of establishments he visited. Craig Hodges was a consummate, uh, not only just an athlete, but a consummate human being. And so therefore, being a consummate human being and a consummate conscious human being, they had to get rid of him, and they did. And thanks to uh, the slave Michael Jordan. And, um, you know, by the way, uh, incidentally, his father was, was killed by uh, two youth, uh, two ill-advised youth who didn't understand, you know, what they were doing, who was simply out for money, not understanding that, uh, you know, that the man was the father of a superstar. It doesn't mean that he had money. They, they, they assumed because he was the father that he had lots of money, and that wasn't the situation. And they killed the, they killed the, they killed the elder, you know, thinking that he had money. Now, if this knucklehead, Michael Jordan, the slave would have invested in the community, the possibility was that these young boys might have been part of those institutions that were created, and they would have understood that victimizing the elder like that was, 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 was uh, unacceptable, that it, that it simply can't happen, that in order for us to move along as a people, then we have to work together, and we have to respect our elders. We have to, because without the elders, then there would have been no future for us. And so, therefore, these, unfortunately, these young brothers never knew that. And so, therefore, they essentially you know, gave in to the, con- the social condition which says that, okay, it's okay to prey on other African people because that's the American way. The American way, of course, is to prey on one another. And so, therefore, these young youth uh, internalized those values, and as a consequence, you know, killing Michael Jordan's, Jordan's father. But the irony is that even after they killed his father, the damn fool still didn't understand what Craig Hodges was saying to him. Even today, he still don't understand. So, in any event, you know, I'll close with that, brother. I'll leave it at that. Okay, now as we talk about sports and slavery, let's look at the relationship between businesses, owners, when they default default athletes out of millions and millions of dollars. We call that doing business. But when athletes find ways to undermine the institutions and owners, we call it defrauding. Sister, Sister Eleanor and Brother Moses, how do y'all view this article, which is titled "Former WFT, the Washington Football Team, uh, Defrauding Retired Players"? There was a well-known player named Clinton Porter's, him along with some other former football players, being charged with defrauding the, the retired football um, uh, program in which they received money back from this particular program undisguised that they needed medical equipment. Well, I'm just curious in terms of when we look at the behavior of the institution, the owners, how they defraud millions of athletes out of money and the table reverse, seem like you know, the athletes all get the worst end. I'm just curious in terms of your take. Since I don't know, when you read this article, uh, how did you view it? Well, 
Well, I found it uh, quite phenomenal because uh, the guy pled guilty, and I'm wondering what kind of mindset is this? You know, you have these owners making billions of dollars off of them. They they need some type of uh, medical fund for their long-term injuries, which aren't discussed or taken into consideration in their contracts. You have, uh, I don't know who's writing the contracts for the NFL players because they're full of loopholes. If you have a contract, it should be airtight. For example, uh, we hired a, a school board superintendent in the district, and whether that person completed their job or not, they were getting X million of dollars. How are these people not paid? But I thought that was quite bizarre uh when you're when you're cutting a player and taking away his 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 income and uh destroying his career that's business and yes when you uh 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 make a uh when there's some issue over medical equipment whether or not you need it now or when you're going to need it in the future and the impact this is going to have on this player's life because these people have these uh, trauma injuries, head injuries, also um, ligament tears and all these things that come back to hunt them at later days. How will they recoup? Where will they get the funds to pay for the equipment they need? And uh, I just didn't understand how that was possible, and and who uh, raised the issue? Who 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 who? How did this become an issue? And uh, again, it's an it's an industry where there's very little equity. It's not organized. It needs some type of unions, and the union reps need to have. Uh, be separate from the owners and the corporate entity of the team itself in order to have any kind of equity. And um, that's about it uh, uh, that I I can say on that subject. I just think about Thank how people that. lose their careers and, and uh, business is going on as usual, and the players themselves, are being criminalized after they've um, completed their tenure. What are the rewards? Thank you, Susanna Noah. Brother Moses, what do you make of this article? Who's defrauding who? Your take on this article, Brother Moses. Well, um, you're saying who is the what now? Who are defrauding? They got them for, 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 for defrauding the player association um, in relationship to filing a false claim of needing medical equipment when in reality yeah, they didn't need right, it. Right, right, right. And yeah, it was unfortunate they caught up Clinton Porters and some of the old Washington folks. Um, it just shows you that when when it comes down to money and power and uh, lifestyle and um, easement and comfort, 
Uh, people have a tendency to want to be comfortable and and uh, not give up their lifestyle for anything, and so they're constantly seeking uh, income streams. And uh, obviously, they will do some dishonest things in order to gain that stream. And you know, that's that's the nature of the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, uh, you're born into a world, and uh, you come in, and money, it's a money economy, and you're, you've got to survive. And uh, if you're poor, you don't, you don't get any inheritance, and you don't have any, any petty bourgeois capitalist uh, claims. And so, you know, you have to, you have to have great moral fortitude is more required of, of, of the, of the have-nots than it is of the haves, because you know, we the die shall not steal is is more of a commandment for the poor than it is for the rich who don't have to steal or who steal in other ways. But anyway, uh, it's a capitalist system, and and um, these players got caught up in it. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Let's move forward as we look at this question of sports slavery, and in this case, look at the issue of racism and how to deal with athletes. There's another interesting article if people get a chance, they need to take a look at it in Google, title, Former Patriots Player Reveals How Cam Newton Truly Lost His Job at New England. Now, one of the things about this article we're interested in until you read it to the end. At the end, it takes a position that Cam Newton truly lost his job due to him taking leave of absence from, it, from the team, which the team knew about and gave him permission to get a second assessment on some health issues that he wanted to make sure everything was all right. But once he had done that, when he came back, they said because he had to miss so many days based on his um, Baptist policy, it really led to him getting cut and losing his job. But one of the narratives of, of, of why he lost his job that the press been putting out is that he lost it to a young, recently drafted college football player who never played professional ball before. He lost to a kid who was brighter, smarter, a battle quarterback now, given the fact he never played professional football before, and Ken New has been an all-pro, went to Super Bowl two, three times, and and the best player, the most valuable player in the NFL. He has done all of this, and you have this this, this European little young white, white man coming into the NFL for some reason or another, never played a game before, He's bright, he's smart, he can read a playbook, and he don't play music that people don't like. Creating that the narrative, Anthony, and then Brother Haki. In essence, what are they trying to say to the reading world when they write narratives such as ball players can't read a playbook, even though he played for them a whole year last year and knew the playbook? Or a ball player, he didn't run a two minute drill this year because he didn't know how to do it when this guy been all pro for nine years. What do you make of these? What is the rationale for these kind of narratives? Clearly, it's seen our narratives that's playing the race car and trying to make it look like we are inferior to these young, drafty, European quarterbacks 
who have not proven anything. Your take on that narrative, Brother Anthony, and then Brother Haki. Brother Anthony. Observation is right, Brother Africa. And I would add that uh, that not knowing a playbook or not having understood the playbook has uh, hurt Cam Newton before. But uh, but you know uh, but 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 if you look at his history, his practice, he's he's been on winning programs throughout his career. So he can he he does uh, produce when he when he's out on the field, and uh, you know and the thing about it though, and I think uh, knowing a playbook by heart is only one aspect of uh, being able to perform at a high level, and uh, you know and uh, and I would add that uh that the only solution to this pro- uh the ultimate solution to this problem is to smash capitalism uh and also short of that uh players across all sports need to be better organized and they real and uh the players are disorganized mainly because most players look out for their own self-interest and not for the interests of, uh, uh, you know, of the collective as a whole. And, uh, and that's because they're inculcated with capitalist ideas. And the only way to put an end to that is by uh, ultimately destroying capitalism in this society. That would be the ultimate solution, but short of that, a, a higher level of organization among the players would uh, prevent them from being taken advantage of by the ownership. But because of these contracts uh, that uh, that these uh, team owners uh, sign with the media which, again, is controlled by capitalists. Uh, let's see, uh, players get taken advantage of. Thank you, Brother Adams. Brother Hockey, your take on this narrative. Again, <laughs> Payne Ken Noon, the African quarterback, as being incapable to learn. Their yeah, behavior well, is know, not representative of what a quarterback should do and be, such as they should be listening to rap music or wearing uh, uh, um, fancy hats, and they should be flamboyant. They should be proud of who they are and not willing to walk down with their head looking down. These are positive kind of risks that Cam Newton is being penalized because he don't see himself. He, he doesn't see himself as something of being inferior to no one. Your take, brother Haki. Yeah. I, well, I, I'll start by saying uh, one of the things is that if you had these subjective views uh, of Cam Newton as management, one of the things you don't do, you don't disclose the information to the public. The mere fact that they disclose this to the public suggests that's an ulterior motive in terms of their motivation in terms of doing so. Uh, this is something you never do. They didn't simply say that Cam Newton uh, couldn't understand the playbook. 
They implied that the young quarterback, Mac Jones, actually taught him the playbook, which I find very difficult, simply because, as you alluded to, Cam Newton played a year with New England, so he knew a lot about the playbook. If he didn't know if it's an entirety, that's one thing. But certainly he knew a lot about that playbook, and to suggest that he knew nothing about the playbook suggests to me that's an ulterior motive in terms of putting this information out there. Secondly, you know, they talk about the fact that he couldn't run a two-minute drill. I haven't seen Cameron minutes too many drills uh, when he was with the uh, with the uh, Carolina Panthers, so that didn't make sense to me at all. Putting this out there, and particularly this Rob Nikovich used to play linebacker for the uh, for the um, for the uh, Patriots. Uh, this guy is not known to be uh, he's, uh, he's he's somewhat conservative, so I'm not surprised that he would actually be the one who put this out there. But the mere fact that the high administration of the uh, of the Patriots endorse this, 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 this information suggests that they support Minkovich in terms of stating that your uh, Cam Newton intelligence was questionable. Uh, clearly, Brother Africa, this is, this is very, very problematic just from an organization point of view. Also, you know, and then they always allude to the fact that Cam music like rap music. I mean, my goodness, if he's, if one guy actually said that one, uh, said if he stopped playing rap music, he, he might be okay to help him to focus. Now, listening to rap music and being able to focus are two, being able to focus are two different things. Because you listen to rap, rap music, don't mean you're incapable of focusing. So the mere fact that he says such a thing speaks to the underlying biases that exist in his mind. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, because they view these lot of athletes as less than intelligent, or they view them as um, uh, subjects, or they view them as slaves. Uh, this kind of uh, precipitous racism that exists in our souls. Us oftentimes leaks out, and so clearly, when you say something like that, rap music clouds your judgment or imply that, then you're saying it based upon not based upon science, but you're saying it based upon some subjective feeling you have in terms of Cam Newton as an African person. And lastly, you know, brother African, when you talk about Cam Newton COVID-19 status, one of the things let's be clear about it: when you start talking about the COVID status, and you talk about there's a great resentment, or not resentment, but uh, but um, there's a lot of uh, suspicion when we come to COVID-19 vaccines in the African community, and rightfully so. And it has something to do in terms of historically how they use vaccines, you know, to, to penalize the African community. Uh, that has something to do with that. It has to do with the information that's coming out pertaining to the COVID-19. Uh, recently, uh, I sent you an article where uh, something I talked about maybe three weeks ago about um, and clevocyte in terms of is is is. Um, it's a presence on you know, spike protein of this so-called COVID-19 virus. And talking about how this, this, this enzyme, this furin COVID spike, makes it easier for the COVID-19 to penetrate the cell. And I talked about that on, on this program on numerous occasions. Well, someone who was intimately involved in the research actually leaked that that, in fact, was the case. Uh, and they talked about the fact that there was U.S. representatives that are called the Health Alliance working uh, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the Chinese in Wuhan. So, you know, the real fact that someone working on this pro- this project talked about the fact that, in fact, that this project was used, that the COVID-19, in fact, was COVID-19 spike by, spike uh, protein was, in fact, infected with COVID, uh, fear and COVID sites, speak volumes in terms of why African people are hesitant to take it, not because something historically happened to African people, but because what's currently happened to African people. And when you look at the information that's come out in terms of people who are taking these viruses and have come down with COVID-19 anyway, when you look at the, the, the number of people who've been taking on their fourth protocol in terms of the vaccine and have leading the world in terms of uh, COVID-19 infections, then the question becomes, what the hell is going on here? 
African people have a right to be suspicious about these vaccines. And when they keep advocating more and more vaccines, more and more booster shots, then that says that this whole bullshit about how how much efficacy these, these vaccines had was all bull. Because if they were so, if they had much efficacy, if they were that efficient, then there certainly wouldn't be a need for third, fourth, five, and six booster shots in terms of curing or treating COVID-19. So African people got to uh, justify it in their their their, uh, their 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 caution in terms of taking these vaccines. And the mere fact that Cam Newton didn't take his didn't take this uh his uh, his, his, his his vaccine, perhaps. You know, they, they, they saw him as the uppity kinds of uh, African, and, and, of course, uppity Africans have to be dealt with. And so clearly the, the reasons they give in terms of releasing him, to me, don't set well. It's not based upon some subjective notion, you know, that uh, Cam Newton was, you know, was above reproach. It comes from the fact that the things that they put out doesn't stand up to muster. Not close with that. Okay. Listen, audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're doing our final segment of a three-part series, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. We would like to make a quick statement as it relates to liberation, as it relates to the question of sports. There's no liberation. When you look at the underpayment of the athletes and how little money they have left after three years of retiring from the sports, most of them are in medical, medical bad shape. They have bad health care. And in order to... Um, Get proper health care. Most of them don't have, or didn't make enough money to take care of their needs health-wise, so they end up in debt. Some of them end up committing suicide. So this question, I think, that going to play sports will help liberate you. For many of these athletes, there has been a world of illusions. So don't equate this question of liberation and sports as being the same when it comes to our people. That is a misnomer. So, panelists, what I want to do, I ask each one of y'all to give me a two-minute uh, summation on the theme tonight, sports, slavery, and liberation, and then we'll close out for the night. We'll start off with you, Brother Moses. Give me your two-minute summation of whatever you want to say as it relates to this topic. Sports, slavery, and liberation, Brother Moses. Um. I would have to say that uh, um, slavery, the chattel slavery, is a is a quantitative change, the difference between chattel slavery and wage slavery. And certainly, you know, these athletes being uh, like indentured servants or some kind of contractual slavery um, and contractual employment um, have the characteristics of slavery uh, in, in and that they employ it, and they can't, they don't have free will. Uh, so, but you know, nevertheless, they are making enormous amounts of money, and they they do they're not your regular running the mill person in society in terms of oppression. And so, you know, I just think you know we have to to get them organized, get them conscious of the conditions they in, and. Uh, like Howard uh, Treadman said, she could have freed more slaves if they knew they were slaves. And so we have to free ourselves from mental slavery. And, uh, and so we have to educate and, uh, and uh, politicize. We need a political revolution. We don't, we don't need more than a cultural revolution. We need a political revolution. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. 
Thank you, Brother Moses. This is Eleanor. You'll find the thoughts on the thing, part three, sports, slavery, and liberation. Well, Brother Africa, it brings me back to uh, our discussion earlier of the uh, new rap star is walking around pregnant. This man, uh, his, his, his aesthetic, his taste in music, his cultural aesthetic, cost him his job, suggesting that <clears throat> the type of, of music and the venues uh, that he visited affected his uh, ability to play. And this whole thing of reading the playbook, that's such a common common thing when we talk about black literacy and black people. So now we have the literacy of the playbook. This should only urge us as a people to develop reading programs of all types for everyone. And I doubt if a nine-year player had that much problem uh, any kind of problem reading the playbook. And I was wondering, what is the playbook, a 200-page dissertation on NFL runs? What is it? I'm sorry, I don't know. But I think, again, these workers uh, are left in dismal condition. Um, they don't have insurance plans that are in place for life as retirees to address their health issues. So they're being charged with uh, criminal behavior when they uh, allegedly uh, ordered equipment that they hadn't received or didn't receive. And in all all possibility, they needed funds, as uh, Brother Robert said, just to maintain their lifestyle, to be able to protect themselves and their health whether it's acupuncture and massage, I can't imagine whether they need a sauna every week, but certainly it must be something because two big 200-pound men running into each other head first is a, it's, it's just a, a suffering. They suffer for the joy of the masses, and they're receiving next to nothing. I know that compared to the average wage earner, they've earned phenomenal money. But in terms of the injuries and the suffering, um, I don't think it's uh, – and the earnings of the industry is not, comp, it's not comparable what they're earning. And uh, it's, a, it's a visible example of the abuses of labor in a capitalist economy. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Go to Brother Haki. You'll find the thoughts on the theme tonight, part three, sports, slavery, and liberation. Brother Haki. Well, <clears throat> well, Brother Africa, uh, you, know, um, you know, one thing, people keep talking about the, the importance in terms of, you know, voting. Uh, ironically, you know, when you think about voting, you know, nothing ever seems to change. Uh, so if voting is so potent, then one has to ask themselves, you know, we keep voting these Democrats in, but yet the policies that come from these same Democrats all tend to be adversely uh, uh, opposed uh, to the interests of African people. And you got to ask yourself, so what is it? So who do these Democrats represent? You know, recently, Brother Africa, um, the, uh, they, 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 they attempted to pass a bill 
in which the, the, the so-called 1033 uh, program is attempted to get rid of that. And the 1033 program is a program that authorized military weaponry being given, in some cases sold, to the police departments throughout America. And ironically, you know, out of that, you know, out of that, uh, that, that bill, 22 Democrats voted against ending the 1033 program. In other words, they wanted those weapons to continue to flow into, into the police coffers. Now, the police used these, these sophisticated weaponry specifically for the purposes of killing people. Now, why would these Democrats want to create a scenario, create the conditions where these same cops who, I mean, I mean all the time, particularly in the African Union, why would you want to create a scenario in which they have access to continuously more and more, you know, weaponry, more sophisticated weaponry? So do the interest lies with the African people? Does it lies with the interest of, of who, gives them, who gives them money, who funds them? Uh, clearly, equally, equally, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, um, unfortunate is the fact that when we talk about the 1033 program, and this is part of an amendment <laughs> under the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, for those who don't know what the National Defense Authorization Act is, it's one of those acts that is mandated in case there's a, um, a, 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 let's say, a large-scale incursion in this country they got the right to employ mass incarceration, and particularly talk about concentration camps. So they're currently in the process of setting up, you know, old, um, old, old areas uh, throughout the, throughout the seven areas throughout the country, specifically for the purpose of mass incarceration. So this is all authorized under the National Defense Authorization Act. So clearly, so when you talk about the National Defense Authorization Act and you talk about Program 1033, the two go hand in hand. So on one hand, what they're actually saying, these politicians are saying. We're going to provide the police with the with the ammunition to make damn sure that they're able to round up large number of people, given the, the given the given the, the advanced nature of the weaponry, and given the fact that uh, it's so prolific in terms of its ability to kill. So clearly, the interest of the African people is not an interest, and so we got to stop deluding ourselves and understand that at some point we have to figure out that if we don't resolve these problems ourselves as a community, then the bottom line is that we wait for these these these, these Republic, I mean these Democrats to resolve our situation, resolve our problems. Then we're 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 big trouble, and brother Africa, I close with that. But in always, you know, one of the things I always tell people, you know, I think this is very very key. One of the things we must do is we must unravel the matrix. We have to, because all these, despite the fact that information is controlled, uh, that uh, a lot of information that we need to have, it exists, but we have to look for it. And if we don't look for it, if we think that somehow that the capitalist is going to um, conveniently uh, provide the information to us, then we're sadly mistaken. So it's incumbent upon us to search for this information, to understand the implications of information, and the movement create these organizations and institutions that are so key because we're, we're facing some very dire situations coming at us. So clearly we have to start thinking about the situation. Even though it's very, very stressful, we have to start thinking about the situation in terms of what we're conceivably what we're confronted with because if we don't think of it now, by the time you have it breaks out, it becomes extremely impossible, not impossible, it becomes extremely difficult in terms of organizing, doing anything in terms of you know, ensuring our longevity in the society. So having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night, and we'll see you next week. Good night, Brother Haki, Brother Anthony. You'll find the thoughts on part three, sports, slavery, and liberation. Yes. Uh, I think it's critically important that uh that athletes get better organized the unions 
that they that 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 they current that currently exist are extremely weak or non-existent, and uh, players have to uh, get better organized so that they can move as a collectivity uh, and uh, better organized against the 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 oppression that's meted out by the owners. And uh, and people have to get away from the fact that just because your salary is X millions of dollars, that means that uh, that, that that does not mean that you're not oppressed. I mean, uh, I mean these Af- uh, these entertainers are su- are subject to uh, all kinds of racist and bigoted abuse when they perform poorly, poorly in their sport. And uh, so the solution to that is permanent organization and ultimately smashing capitalism in all of its forms. And, and one way of more doing that... Organization, Brother Anthony? Sure. And one way of doing that is building Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, which is an objective of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. You can find out more about us and about our objective and program by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And on that website, you can learn about our history, our program, and our uh, our goals, and our ideology, which is incrementalism to racism. We thank you, Brother Anthony, all our political panelists, analysts, and our friends, supporters, and you, the listening audience. Remember, Africa on the Moon comes on weekly every Sunday from 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Please spread and share the word. We are trying to increase our listenership, and we want to remind you remind you to not to forget, if you want to join us along with the African Women Association and other African organizations, we're taking our feet ride to Cuba this year, December 27th to January the 3rd. For more information, please email us at Africa on the Move 2 at Gmail or email the African Awareness Association by emailing African Awareness Association, Association 2 at gmail.com. Come and join us. Come and see Cuba for yourself. And for the night's program, Part 3, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation, remember, there's not no fundamental difference between the institutional slavery and the institutional sports and the captive system. It will not give you liberation, but what we'll do is create a condition where they'll put you in enslavement. These are lessons that we need to learn. And until next time, let's continue to go forward, level, back over level, and listen to Africa on the move. We want you to never forget, no matter where you go, you will take the African out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the African. We'll see you next week. Next week, remember, as long as you're a black man or black woman, you are an African.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.